Hey, we've got a little something extra for you guys in the Hang-Up feed this week. It's an episode of Slate's great daily news podcast, What Next? I hope you're listening to it already. If you're not, this show we've got for you now, it's a great introduction. The host of What Next, Mary Harris, talks to The Washington Post's Ben Golliver about life inside the NBA bubble, the practicalities of it, the ethics of it, and whether it's going to hold. Ben is one of my favorite basketball writers. He's also the host of the podcast, The Greatest of All Talk, with Andrew Sharp. You should subscribe to that, too. Okay, enough from me. Here's what next. When I called up Ben Golliver this weekend, he was alone, sitting in a hotel room in Florida. This room had the standard setup, two beds, and a window that looked out on a little fountain. There was only one catch. When was the last time you left your room? So I have not left my room since I arrived Sunday one week ago. As we're talking, I'm counting down the minutes. I have one hour until they've promised to bring me my credential and to set me free from my room. It will be the first time I've kind of had outside contact or been able to go at least more than one step outside of my hotel room door um, in a solid week. Ben's a basketball reporter, writes for the Washington Post, hosts a bunch of basketball podcasts. This hotel room he's been stuck in, it's in the middle of Walt Disney World, which is where 22 NBA teams are set to resume their 2020 season next week. But before they do that, everyone and anyone who's associated with the league has been locked down in a kind of luxury quarantine, including Ben. My life for the last week has been pacing back and forth, um, you know, in, in my hotel room trying to get my steps and then, you know, doing a heck of a lot of interviews from people all around the world who are like, why are you so crazy? Why have you decided to do this with your life? <laughs> What's like the number one question you get? I think the number one question is, how's the food? For Ben, who's vegetarian, the answer to this question is not great. So I ordered 64 ounces of peanut butter um, off Amazon, <laughs> like within 24 hours of getting here. Thankfully, that arrived. And so that's been uh, my sustenance. And it's been carrying me quite well, I got to say, for this week. I'm imagining you like Pooh Bear with like a spoon and like a big jar of peanut butter. Oh, for sure. And, and sometimes you just skip the spoon. You know, <laughs> you just dip the bread right in there like as quickly as you can. What the National Basketball Association has built in Orlando, it's been called the NBA bubble. Ben says it's actually more than that. You know, everybody talks about the NBA's bubble, but it's really a bubble within a bubble because they're going to still restrict our access uh, to where players are able to go. So for example, I can see one of the players' hotels across this lake, and it's not a very big lake. I could see it. I could walk over there in five minutes, but there's going to be security checkpoints barring reporters from going anywhere near that player's hotel because they want to keep um, the outside access to the players as limited as possible. One way I've put it is like they're sort of the protons, right? And I'm the electrons, right? So they're trying to keep <laughs> they're trying to keep that nucleus real tight. They don't and everybody else can bounce around outside. That's fine. Ben and all these basketball players, they're going to be living in this makeshift biosphere for three months, hunkering down, trying to avoid the coronavirus. You have to remember there's basically more than a thousand people in the bubble currently um, when you're adding up players, coaches, uh, you know, team executives, medical staffers, uh, you know, the, the league's media partners. They have to broadcast this thing on ESPN. So they're using tens of thousands, if not more than 100,000 tests over the course of the next three months. to get 100,000 tests. 
it's a large scale operation. I mean, that's just a, a ballpark, but you know, it all adds up. Everybody needs a test every single day to try to keep this thing tight. So today on the show, we're going to ask, how ethical is it to build a bubble in the first place? And is this bubble destined to burst? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by the LAist. Sun, surf, beaches. The beautiful people. That's the superficial Los Angeles. But to the true Angelinos, LA is more than skin deep. California Love is a new podcast and audio memoir that's your chance to get a real glimpse of LA life. California Love is the story of Los Angeles through the eyes of New York Times journalist and writer Walter Thompson Hernandez. He was born and raised in LA, just a few miles from Hollywood, but he's going to take you inside a California you might not have seen up on the big screen. Listen in as Walter leads you through his LA. You'll learn about the scared straight boot camp where 11 year old Walter was sent for his graffiti crimes. And then you'll be transported to a party line where Los Angeles teenagers flirted and found a way to escape the world around them. Stay tuned after this episode for an exclusive California Love trailer. Download California Love at las.com slash California Love or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com slash California Love. Back in March, the original 2020 NBA season ended with a thud. You might remember what happened. The Utah Jazz were set to play the Oklahoma City Thunder. The arena was packed when suddenly, just before tip-off, the medical staff cleared the court because a player, Rudy Gobert, had just tested positive for COVID. Fans, due to unforeseen circumstances, the game tonight has been postponed. You are all safe. And the NBA, uh, you know, within, you know, an hour or so, indefinitely suspended the season. You know, NBA commissioner Adam Silver put out that statement saying, you know, we're, we're off. We don't know how long we're off. And in the days that followed, he was hoping it might just be four weeks or it might be six weeks. That's what we were all hoping. Yeah, everybody was hoping that. And it became clear this is going to be a possibility of not having a playoffs. And the NBA has crowned a champion every single year since 1957. So the history was weighing on this decision. Billions of dollars of revenue from the television networks were hanging on this decision. And yet ultimately he decided to pull the plug uh, because he didn't feel like it was they knew enough about the virus so they could keep the players safe. The NBA shutdown ended up lasting a lot longer than six weeks. If the league resumes as planned next week, it'll be the first NBA game for more than 140 days. The rest of the season will be played inside the bubble, where players and staff will have little to no interaction with the outside world. They're expecting to remain quarantined until October. (laughs) I just have to wonder if you had any apprehension flying in I mean, had you left your home since the beginning of lockdown? So I was in Los Angeles where I live. I started at basically a home bubble, like I like to call it, you know, one man bubble where I was not leaving for basically any reason. I mean, I get it. everything would be delivered. Thankfully, my employment was in a good situation. I didn't have to go out to do reporting. And so I was going for daily walks around my neighborhood. And that was pretty much the only time I would leave, you know, rarely. I mean, maybe a bank trip every month or two. 
but I felt very safe there because I could kind of control everything. Now the prospect of covering this event, you know, I was going to have to fly cross country commercial. I was going to have to stay in a hotel before I could even get into the bubble, just based on how the timing went. I was even nervous about things like, you know, whether it's going to be an Uber or how do I get to the airport? Like those kinds of questions, which are normally in a normal travel season, just something you don't even think about. Did you ever consider not going? Well, here's here's the thing. I, I love basketball so much. I really have so little else going on in my life that <laughs> I, the way I looked at it was, if LeBron's going there and if uh, Zion Williamson and these star players are going to be there, then I probably, you know, I'm, I'm going to be there too. And so there was a rationalization process. But, you know, ultimately what I did is I consulted experts. So I talked to my my doctor. I talked to a psychiatrist um, because I knew it was going to be an isolated environment down here. I talked to my cardiologist. I talked to medical experts inside the NBA in terms of some of the decision makers who were, you know, giving the okay for their players to come down. And then I also talked to epidemiologists outside the NBA just to kind of get their sense. You know, we've been reporting on this plan for months, so I, I felt like pretty comfortable with how it was going to play out. But still, when it's your own life and your own health at stake, you know, you want to make sure you're you're doing your due diligence. You said you talked to all these experts before you came down. Was there a consensus or was there a moment with one of those physicians that stood out to you where they said something that changed your mind? Um, I wouldn't say that uh, there was a like a light bulb moment. I would say that in general, everybody gave the thumbs up. They wanted to know really to drill down into how the testing was going to work, how regular it was going to be, how quickly the results were going to come back. I think what they were concerned is if you're not getting your result for four or five days or, or seven days and you're walking around having potential contact with other people in the bubble, um, your risk could be pretty high. Now, the way the NBA's testing program works is we get our results back within 15 hours. And so there is a real like psychic benefit to knowing that you're negative and you're going to probably be negative again the next day. And you can just log on to the website and it will confirm with you that you're negative. And that kind of builds like some you know peace of mind over time. It's interesting that the doctors brought up the speed of testing as such an important element for them in kind of giving the green light for you to go down, because that's become part of the controversy of what's happening in the bubble, because folks like you inside the bubble are getting really quick coronavirus test results regularly, whereas the people in Orlando more generally or in Florida more generally they've had a much harder time getting quick test results. And of course, Florida is in the middle of this massive surge of coronavirus cases. Absolutely. There is no question that this is an incredible privilege to be down here and to have this level of care. It's not accessible to the average person. I feel like I'm living a one percenter lifestyle and in a way that I've never really uh, been living before. I mean, just as an example, like we're, the Post is paying tens of thousands of dollars for me to be here uh, for the next three months. And within that price is not only the hotel room, but also the testing program. So um, this is a level of care not available to the average American. This gold-plated health care has become an issue. From the beginning of the outbreak, basketball players have found themselves at the front of the line for coronavirus testing. The league seems to simply be paying for access. You know, if you rewind back to March and April, one of their go-to lines was, you know, we don't want to do anything that's taking away from, um, you know, the, the ability of the average people to kind of get their, their health care. And in this situation, um, you know, they decided, well, you know, if it's a choice between we can go forward with our business and try to recoup this money, or we have to sit on the sidelines and wait for the federal government to solve the testing situation and basically have universal instant result testing for the entire country. Um, they decided they weren't ready to wait for that. And they, they actually 
you know, wanted to hold their own testing program to a higher standard than the government's. I think it's an interesting decision. Uh, I do understand why people would be upset. Yeah. I mean, it's I listened to like the logistics of your stay in Florida so far, and I can't help but think like I, I wish my kids school <laughs> had a ramp up that was this built out, that was this thought through, because it seems like the NBA just they really wanted this to happen. They had the money and they just did it. And it, it was funny because as I was thinking about that, I realized that just this past week, Governor DeSantis had come out and said, listen, testing folks in schools regularly, it just won't be feasible. And it made me wonder, like, what is feasible and for whom? Because for the NBA, a lot seems feasible. <laughs> for the people who aren't in the bubble, it, it just seems like a lot less is possible. Yeah, and it's a question about our country's priorities too, right? And and who is ultimately feeling responsibility? I think that there's been a, a real deference to uh, the states and a deference towards private corporations and sort of the handling of this thing. I assumed, and it turned out incorrectly, that pro sports would be the lowest priority on the totem pole, right? I assumed that we would be doing everything we possibly could to open schools first, doing everything we possibly could to kind of get, uh, you know, the uh, the economy or the, the drivers, you know, back on track. Um, in terms of manufacturing and things like that, like that would be the the national priority. And instead, I mean, to my eye, I don't know exactly what the national priority was. I'm, I'm not sure that's been clearly communicated to me. And it's been left to companies to sort of say, well, what are your individual priorities? It's kind of sink or swim time. And the NBA decided, you know, we don't want to sink. <laughs> We're going to try to do this however we possibly can. And it still might not work. And that's the other scary thing here, too, is that you know they've done everything in a very logical, process-oriented manner. They've displayed the kind of response and thoughtfulness and care for their employees that I think a lot of organizations should to should um, try to do to, to try to follow but that's no guarantee that everyone's going to stay healthy down here and it's no guarantee they're going to be able to crown a champion like they want to in October you're talking about how the NBA has been very careful about what they do here and I think that's true and it's all laid out in this 113 page document about the health and safety protocols down there in the bubble I'm wondering if we can just tick off some of the rules and regulations. Because when you dig into this thing, they're so specific and there are so many different kind of fail-safes along the way. I think it'll be illuminating to people just how locked down things are. Absolutely. Before we get into the specifics, remember that the NBA players actually have a union and it's a fairly strong union. It's not the strongest uh, pro sports union. I would say that's probably goes to baseball, but they carry a lot of weight and they had a very loud voice in the formulation of these uh, uh, protocols because ultimately they're the employees. There's whose health is at risk. Did any players refuse to come? Yes. Multiple players refused to come. Many needed kind of convincing or, or they waffled back and forth. Um, you know, it was a situation where there was questions not only about the health uh, safety aspect, also the quality of life aspect of being away from your friends and family for up to three months. And then also they were concerned about distracting from the social justice protests. You know, a number of the players had been leaders in the social justice movement, and they were worried, hey, if we're stuck down in Orlando, we're not going to be able to do what we need to do in terms of, you know, marching in the streets or, or, or being those kinds of voices. So there was a number of player concerns that had to be addressed before they ultimately came together. And uh, the majority of the players decided to come down here and play. Now, in terms of the um, specifics of these protocols, a big thing is obviously disinfecting 
and, uh, you know, keeping teams separate from each other as much as possible. So teams are kind of living on different floors. They're encouraged to only eat together and intermingle if they are outdoors. Um, they're, they have to wear masks basically at all times when they're not playing and they're out on campus. During the games, uh, people who aren't playing, basically they're calling them the second row players and coaches will be wearing masks and seated at some level of a distance. Yeah. I mean, the specifics here are just so striking. Like one of the things in there is, you know, you'll have these wristbands and and you may have a proximity alarm. So whenever you get within six feet of someone you're not supposed to, it would go off and sort of warn you, you need to back off a little bit. And then there's all this language about teams have to brief the players about on-court behaviors that could increase risk of coronavirus spread. And players will be discouraged from licking their fingers or spitting or clearing their nose or touching their mouth guard. All this stuff that if you've watched an NBA game, these guys are constantly touching themselves and each other. And I had to wonder, looking at these regulations, like, what is basketball going to look like? Yeah, I think their idea is you can never get risk to zero, right? So you just need to take the the obvious steps to reduce it as much as you possibly can. And they're also uh, equipping players, if they want, with a medical tracking ring. They can wear it basically at all times besides when they're in the games. It will provide real-time medical updates. Like temperature and oxygen levels. Yep. And, And the idea there is, again, maybe are you being proactive and identifying symptoms that the player doesn't notice before he notices it? But um you know, there's very few things that these guys are going to be allowed to do. You've seen them golfing. You've seen them fishing. They're kind of turning to the lawn sports. So they've tried to think of absolutely everything. But one hilarious situation, I guess it's really not that funny, but uh, you know, it's an example of how strictly they're taking this. One guy tried to order Postmates and go down uh, you know, by the hotel entrance and kind of evade security a little bit to get his Postmates. He was caught doing that, and he was sent back to a 10-day quarantine period Um, basically because they didn't know if that Postmates driver could have potentially um, infected him and then he could pass that along to his teammates. So again, these rules are strict and they're strict for a reason. And personally, when I heard that story, I would laugh because it was sort of like, well, of course someone would try to do that, right? And the second thought is, (laughs) well, like I might have to interview him. So I'm glad he's in quarantine. I don't don't want somebody who's like, you know, interfacing with the outside world like that, um, kind of flippantly, you know, potentially exposing me to the virus. So There's going to develop, I think, this idea that we're all in this together, right? And I think that especially the teams that have a lot of money at stake, um, you know, players who have really big salaries or the teams that are expecting to make a deep run and challenge for a title, I expect that the peer pressure within those groups is going to be very high. Everybody, we need to stick to the rules together because uh, otherwise this whole thing could get ruined uh, by the weakest link. I can tell that you're an optimist. Well, that's uh, it could be the Stockholm Syndrome setting in. I'll say that because <laughs> I was very skeptical before I came down here and I had lots of questions and I was I thought that they had maybe been a little bit, um, you know, uh, penny wise and pound foolish by bringing so many teams down here to try to get as much television revenue as possible. To me, it seemed like an unnecessary risk. Um, once you're getting down here and you're actually going through the the regimented testing process, it provides a peace of mind, you know, even more so than when I was at home in Los Angeles, because I was not getting tested every single day. I didn't know what my status was. Uh, and I also think that this campus feels a lot like a college campus during summer break or maybe like during intercession, where it, there's only like 10% of the people here. You know, this this hotels can 
host tens of thousands of people on a regular basis, and there's no outside tourists. This is all NBA personnel. So even though there is a thousand people from the NBA down here, it still feels very empty. It's not like you're getting into crowded elevators and you're worried about someone coughing on you. It's not like, you know, everyone's jockeying for position on the walking trail because there's just not that much room. It is, you know, relatively sprawling and spread out. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you I'm glad you said Stockholm Syndrome, because I feel like part of the reason I have a slightly different perspective than you is because I'm not there. You know, I'm looking at like the commissioner of the NBA, Adam Silver. Early on, he said the league's return would be dictated by the data and not the date. And so I look at Florida and the fact that we're about to see the NBA start up in one of the hottest hotspots in the country. And I think this is the exact opposite of what the commissioner said he wanted to do. But it seems like things are rolling forward anyway. One thousand percent. I mean, it, it, there's no question he started with the date rather than the data. I mean, it's kind of backwards from what he originally pledged. Um, they decided they wanted to do this in late July because they needed to try to complete this season before delaying the start of next season by too much. So they felt some real time pressure. They thought they had picked a pretty safe place. The facts on the ground definitely changed in the two months between when they selected Disney World and you know when we all got here. Um, ultimately, I think that they return to the logic of the bubble idea. And that would say it doesn't really matter where you are if your bubble is strong, if you're protecting your players inside. You know, if they start off with a, a baseline of nobody sick, you should be able to maintain that as long as you don't have, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, movement inside and outside of, I guess we want to call it the membrane. After we recorded this interview, the NBA announced that since July 13th, their bubble has been coronavirus free, for the players at least. What remains unknown is how long that can last. Because the bubble's staff, they go home to their families each day. And it's unclear how long these athletes can stay quarantined. Do you think the bubble will hold? I mean, I'm, I know the bubble will hold by my behavior because that's what I can control. I cannot control 300 plus NBA players and how they want to spend their free time. <laughs> and I do think if you're comparing it to other professional sports leagues where like baseball, for example, doesn't have a bubble, they're reliant solely upon testing. Uh, football has not really laid out what their plan is going to be whatsoever. Hockey is doing kind of hub sites, which is going to be similar to you know, kind of a bubble uh, type environment. I think that I'm more optimistic now than I was before I got here that the bubble has a real chance of holding. And, you know, ultimately, I think the risk here is lower uh, significantly than the risk is, uh, you know, in the outside society. It's not zero, though. And, and that's the part that is the most difficult to predict. But also the tricky part is they're going to be here for three months. It's a long time. A lot of things can go wrong. A lot of things can change, you know, during that time period. But personally, I'm very confident they're going to be able to start games later this month and, you know, continue forward. Uh, for the foreseeable future hosting games. Ben Golliver, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Ben Golliver writes about the NBA for The Washington Post. You can also listen to him on a number of podcasts, including The Greatest of All Talk and Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Jason DeLeon, Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, and Daniel Avis. This week and every week, we have a little help from Alicia Montgomery and Allison Benedict. I'm Mary Harris. I'll catch you back here tomorrow.
LA is where I was born and raised. And for years, it's where I've documented life in this city. Not the pop culture headlines, but the stories of people and communities that hardly get recognized. Compton Cowboy, good morning. I brought LA wherever I travel to around the world as a journalist. And now, I'm back home. Mijo, look, look, those cowboys, they're black cowboys. I taught him how to do everything that he knows. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Kobe. 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 Woo. Kobe made people feel as confident as he was. How do you dress? <laughs> He's like, you know, like a casual gangster. <laughs> From LA Studios, this is California Love, a new audio memoir about LA. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.